Thank you for listening to Liberty Christian Center's podcast. Let's join guest minister David Holland for today's message. I want to share a couple of things today and, and, and maybe you help you or have you look at something in a way that you haven't seen it in a long time and maybe you've forgotten about it or maybe you've never seen it this way before at all. Uh, it has to do with what happened at the cross. Uh, we're not too many weeks past Easter, but there's really not ever a bad time to talk about what Jesus did at the cross, what God accomplished for us there. It was, it was huge, and it's, it's bigger than we think. I enjoyed, I listened online to Pastor Paul's Easter sermon where he talked about Jesus being God's selfie. You remember that sermon? It was great. It was a great message, and I love that imagery of the fact that it re- reveals the truth that Jesus said. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father looks like? You want to know what the Father prioritizes? You want to know what the Father values? You want to know how the Father behaves? You've seen it in me. Everywhere I've gone, if I've seen sick people, I've healed them. If I've seen blind eyes, I've opened them. I've I've broken up funerals. Every funeral I came across, I broke up. I've made broken people whole. Uh, I've given people hope when they were hopeless. Uh, and that's what the Father's about. That's, and the cross was really the centerpiece of, of accomplishing that. I'm going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture today. If you brought your Bibles, uh, we're going to start in John chapter 12. And then we're, when we end up, we're going to end up in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to go some other places in between, but if you want to just kind of mark those two spots. The cross was a good day for us. Numerous preachers through the years have made it very clear that the cross was a place of exchange, and that's absolutely true. There were numerous exchanges that took place at the cross for us. The cross is the place where we exchange our sinfulness for his righteousness. We sang about that, that we have his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin itself on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's an exchange that takes place when we come to the cross. We take our sinfulness, see it placed upon Jesus, and then his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, is imputed and imparted in a very real way to us. That's a great exchange. That's a great deal. But it's also where we exchange our shame for his glory, our curse for his blessing, our brokenness for his healing, our poverty for his abundance, our rejection for his acceptance, and our death for his life, ultimately. We, we have come to the cross under a death sentence, carrying death inside of us, and we come away with that death being placed upon him, and we come away with life. Life inside of us, the life of God inside of us, and eternal life as our destiny. That's a great exchange. The cross was a good day for you and me. A good day. But there's an aspect that I don't know that we completely understand or keep in mind. The cross was a bad day for someone. The cross was a bad day for Satan. It was a bad day for the devil. And I don't ordinarily like to spend a whole lot of time talking about the devil because, frankly, he, he gets more attention than he deserves anyway. But I love talking about the devil in the light of his defeat by Jesus. And when we look at what Jesus has accomplished at the cross... We, there, was a, there was something very remarkable and very important that transpired. 
And that understanding, if you'll carry that understanding forward, it will make all the difference in your life. As a matter of fact, if you will get what I'm about to explain and, and, and unpack from the word into your thinking, into your assumptions, if you will put this on as a set of lenses through which you look at your life and you look at the world, it will absolutely change your life from this, this day forward. It will change everything. This changes everything. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Let's unpack it. Something happened at the cross that is not well understood. We tend to act and think as if the cross made no change in the devil's status. But is that true? Look at John 12. In, in the 12th chapter of John, Jesus has basically turned the, his entire focus to the cross. He's headed for Jerusalem, and the cross is his focus. He's had a three-year ministry, and that three-year ministry was essentially a prophetic ministry. Jesus was being a, a prophet to the people of, of, of Israel, to, to the people of Judah, as had been predicted. As a matter of fact, there'd been a prophecy that one would, a prophet would rise up uh, among Israel who was a prophet like Moses had been to them and who would declare God's words and truth to them. And Jesus was operating in that prophetic ministry. A lot of the red letters in your Bible in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are essentially Jesus being, a, being prophetic to that generation of Israelites. But this came this point in this ministry, in his ministry, when he basically saw the cross on the horizon and focused on that, and it became his primary focus. And John chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, that's basically Jesus in I'm heading for the cross mode. So he says something to a group of people here in John chapter 12, if you start with verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What's he talking about? The hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of this trial that's coming upon us. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. Basically, Jesus is saying, what, what am I going to pray now that, Father, you saved me from this hour? What? I can't pray that. This is the whole reason I came. It's the reason I'm here. So, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. I never cease to be amused when I read the next, um, the next verse. Therefore, some people stood by and heard it and said that it had thundered. God speaks real words that people understand, and yet some people, all they hear is thunder. And it's the truth. It's the truth today that sometimes God's people can be in a, in a scenario in which God does something very clear, very rema remarkable, speaks in a very clear way, and some people miss it. They just don't have ears to hear it. Some said it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not become because of me, but for your sake. God wanted you to hear this. Then, I want you to pay careful attention to what he says next. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Underline now. Now. Say now. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus doesn't leave us any question uh, or any uh, room for uncertainty about what he's talking about here, what this now is, because he said he's signifying what kind of death 
he's going to die. That's the now that he's talking about. Jesus' phrase here, the ruler of this world, is an interesting phrase. He's referring to Satan. It's clear that he's referring to Satan as the ruler of this world who's about to be cast out. He'll use the very same phrase two chapters later. In John chapter 14, he'll say, uh, guys, we've got to get moving here. The ruler of this world is coming for me, but he has nothing in me. Remember that passage? In, it's, there, he's just hours away from the cross at that point. He uses the same phrase again, and it's the same phrase in Greek, the ruler of this world. Interestingly enough, when in that second saying, when he said, the ruler of this world is coming for me, but he has nothing in me. What that phrase literally means is he has no rightful leverage or prerogatives in me. There's basically, the, he's the ruler of this world and he's coming for me, but he has no leverage or rightful prerogatives in me. There's an implication in that statement that up to that point, the ruler of this world has had some leverage and some prerogatives in the lives of everyone else who's lived on planet earth. And we'll see why that is in just a moment. He uses a couple of words here in Greek that are translated ruler and world in English. The word he used for ruler is archon, A-R-C-H-O-N. And it basically means a leader or administrator or a head, somebody who has legal rights to administrate. Archon is used many times in the New Testament, and it, sometimes it's used to describe the, the leadership of the temple. Sometimes it's used to describe Roman governors or Roman leaders. But it, basically, it's a word that you would use anytime you refer to somebody who had legal, administrative rights and power. The second word, world, is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos is an interesting Greek word because it can take on a number of different shades of meaning. But the most fundamental meaning it has is to mean the, the planet, planet Earth. It can mean cre creation itself, but it specifically uh, can mean planet Earth. So let's look at what Jesus said here. He said, the archon of this cosmos is about to be cast out. The person who has administrative rights and authority of, this, of planet Earth is about to be cast out. The other word I want to bring your attention to is the word that's translated cast out. It's the Greek word ekbalo. Ekbalo. It's a word that only appears one other time in the New Testament. It means to violently expel, to drive out, to lead away with irresistible force. To violently expel, to drive out, and to lead away with irresistible force. There's actually a fourth there's a fourth common meaning for this word, the way that this word was used in Greek. And I'm reluctant to get too graphic about um, what it really means. But I will tell you that there was this one time I ate some bad shrimp and got really, really bad food poisoning. And stuff was expelled violently <laughs> for a couple of days. We were on our honeymoon. My wife actually thought, my husband is dying on our honeymoon. I'm gonna, we've been married three days and I'm losing him right here in a foreign country. But that is the implication of Ekbalo. Jesus said the archon of this cosmos is about to be Ekbaloed. Now is the time that that's going to be happened, where he's forcefully driven out. The Amplified basically unpacks this pretty well. 
uh, it says, now the judgment crisis of this world is coming on. The sentence is being passed on this world. Now the ruler, evil genius prince of this world, will be cast out, expelled. So according to Jesus, what was about to happen at the cross and the resurrection would forcefully, violently expel the ruler of this world. But expelled from what? As we're about to see, what he was expelled from was his legal standing as the rightful administrator of planet Earth. To see why that's the case, and to see how he got to be the rightful administrator of planet Earth to begin with, I've got to take you back to the garden. All of our married couples that were here this week, we went back to the garden to learn about the purpose for marriage. We're going to go back to the garden again. And Jesus was constantly taking us back there as well. Here's the, here's the important thing you need to understand that makes all of Genesis and all of the Old Testament and everything that God is doing in the earth today and your life, for that matter, make sense. Here's a paradigm. Here's a set of lenses that make everything make sense. All the mysteries evaporate if you'll understand this one thing. So hold on. God established the universe, this created order, on a legal and judicial framework. God not only spoke and atoms and energy and light and all of those things came into place, and, and they did, but he built them upon a framework, a latticework, of legality, of, of judiciality, a set of rules, so to speak, that the game of the universe was going to run by. Principles. It's a principle-centered, principle-driven universe that God created. And God is good. He's, he's holy, he's righteous, and he's good, good, good. So what that means is, is that because he's good and holy, God himself won't violate the rules that he built this universe on. In other words, God won't and can't cheat, even though he created the game. God is incapable, because of his goodness, of cheating at the game of the universe. The fact that Jesus had to die testifies of this. I remember being a kid and my mom telling me you know, for one of the first times that Jesus died for me. Jesus came and he was the son of God and he came and he died for me. And my question to her was, why? Well, because he had to. Jesus had to die. Why? Why did Jesus have to die? Who, who, who made that rule? The fact that, that it was necessary, that what happened at the day of the cross, the fact that that was necessary, shouts that God built the universe on this legal judicial framework and is not free because of his own righteousness. He's self-limited by his own goodness to not cheat. I'm telling you, if you, you or I were God... If we, we would have just basically blown the whole thing up and started all over again. Said, do over, call in a do over. You know, we're the ones who, when we hit our golf ball, you know, kind of into the rough, we just kind of take our foot and kind of kick it, <laughs> kick it out there where we can get a little better swing at it. God doesn't do that. God plays it where it lies because he's good. He's not like us. God didn't and couldn't, and we can't understand this. this. This boggles our minds that when God was making the creation on the, on the giant etch-a-sketch of, of the universe, that when man came in and messed it up, 
God just didn't take it and turn it upside down and just give it a good shake and start all over. Have you ever wondered why? You ever wondered why God just didn't do a do-over? Because that's not in his nature. His nature is to follow the rules that he set up. And one of the things that God set up was granting to mankind, to Adam and Eve and all of their descendants, dominion stewardship of planet Earth. And it wasn't just a nice sentiment. When God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion over it, it wasn't just, he wasn't just giving them a nice pep talk. That was a legal grant of dominion stewardship to this planet that had legal implications. It was, it was just as real as if he'd made up a big contract and signed it himself. That that was, a, that was a legal thing that God did with Adam and Eve and all the descendants. And then for reasons and ways that we, we don't have time to unpack right now, man and kind were deceived into signing that over to God's enemy, Satan. Signed it over legally. And so God began to describe to them, once that had happened, all the implications of it. There were lots of implications about curses and the things that were unleashed because Satan cannot create. Satan is the opposite of good. And now by signing dominion stewardship, dominion legal administrative authority to this corrupted, corrupting, defiled, defiling thing, all sorts of corruption and defilement were unleashed on planet Earth. And... God had to work within the judicial framework that he built the universe on to try to make that right. And that's immediately what he did. God immediately started about the work of undoing legally what had been legally done. And that began with a promise. A promise to the woman saying, you're going to have a descendant, your seed. And your seed is going to crush that serpent's head, get his own heel bruised in the process. But that seed is going to come, and that seed is going to make everything right again. And you can understand the rest of Old Testament history in the context of a cosmic chess match between uh, God working legally to take all the necessary steps that took thousands of years to take to legally be able to get that seed into this material realm. And Satan, at every step, hoping, trying, desperately, and failing to stop it to stop that seed from coming. If it was possible for the seed to have just come within a year after the fall, it would have. He would have. It could have. But much, much had to take place. First of all, God needed a man uh, who would be the, basically the founder of that race of people. He needed a seed pod to get that seed through all of history. And that's what the Jewish people were. The Israelites were God's seed pod. We've been told all our lives the Jews are God's chosen people, but nobody's ever told us chosen for what? To be God's favorites? To, to be the teacher's pet? Just so he'll have one? No, they were chosen to be God's seed pod. They were the, they were the racial, genetic, and spiritual carrier through the centuries, through the millennia of that seed until everything was in order so that that seed could come. God legally needed a man at some point who would be the founder of that seed pod race, and he needed to be a man who would be willing to lay his son on an altar and kill him so that God legally could found a race that would produce a son that, that could be the son of God that could be sacrificed. That was, that was a legal necessity. 
God has always and does need people in this material world with real bodies, with real matter, who are his people who can carry out and, and open windows in heaven for God to get out of the spiritual realm into this realm. We're God's legal, we're God's legal representatives on this planet. But I'm getting ahead of myself. All the Old Testament is that, is that chess match. Satan unleashed curse, uh, sickness, oppression, poverty, depravity, uh, perversity. And we have an entire world full of people today who don't understand that God is good because they look at all that perversity, they look at all that hurt, they look at all that pain, and they say, if God is good, how could there possibly be all of this heartache in this world? And what they don't understand is what you and I are coming to understand right now, today, is that God is self-limited by his own goodness to, to allow hurtful people motivated by hurtful spirits to do hurtful things. Most people carry, and even most Christians carry what I call a cartoon, a cartoon view of God's sovereignty. It's a sitcom Hollywood movie view of God's sovereignty. They say God is sovereign, and he is. He's God. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. But they have this view that's basically, I don't know if you, saw, if you ever saw the Jim Carrey movie. Um, what's, uh, what's the Jim Carrey? Bruce Almighty, thank you very much. You know, Bruce Almighty, Morgan Freeman is God, and he basically imparts his powers as God to, to the Jim Carrey character for a period of time. And basically, as God, he can just do anything he jolly well pleases. He can make people do weird stuff. He can, you know, he, he basically is exhibiting the, the cartoon view of God's sovereignty in that movie. And he creates a big mess of things, but, but basically in that, because he's God, he's doing anything he wants to do, and he's, anything that's happening, he's either causing it or allowing it. And that's exactly the way most people view God today. That if it's happening in the earth right now, God's causing it or allowing it, and he's okay with it. There is, l let me tell you, brothers and sisters, there is much going on right now in this moment that you and I are sitting in this room. There is much going on on planet earth that God is not okay with. I could describe to you right now just what I know, because I know the statistics, what is going on in various points around the planet, and I could describe horrors and pains and, and uh, uh, outrages to the point within, in, that it, within five minutes we would all be weeping. We, we would all just be a, a weeping mess. If I were to describe to you just what's happening right now in this second that you're hearing my words and that God's not okay with any of it, he would, he would prefer that it not happen. It's not his will. He's not allowing it so that that, that person, he's not allowing it so that that person can have a testimony someday. People who get killed don't have a testimony. They just get killed. And yet we, we, we put God on trial. We put his goodness on trial because we don't understand that God has been spending the last many thousands of years, he spent thousands of years to get Jesus into the earth so that they, we could then spend some more time making it right. Romans 8.28 does not have a, have a period after things. For we know that God causes all things. There's no period there. 
It says, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to purpose. God's sovereignty, God is such a brilliant chess player. He's such an unbelievable mathematician that he can look at a world full of 7 billion people and with them making free will choices every second of every day, plot every possible outcome of every one of those 7 billion people making every one of those choices and plot every possible outcome and then through his people and through his spirit and his work in the world make, cause everything to work together for good for you and for his people. He is that smart and he is that good. A chess match ensued. The seed's going to come through the line of Eve. So Cain murders Abel. Satan inspires Cain to murder Abel. But God comes through with Seth, godly Seth. Mankind is so rapidly corrupted that, uh, that there, there isn't going to be time for the seed to come into place. So God has to destroy basically and re reboot mankind's population just so there would be enough time in the timeline for the seed to get there and make everything right. Abraham, who's going to be this father of this nation of the seed pod, lets his wife go into an Egyptian harem like a knothead. You're going to be the, fa you're going to be the father of the nation of the seed pod. And you let your wife go into a harem. If, if, if uh, Sarah gets into that harem, uh, game over. Game over. So God appears to Pharaoh in a dream and says, don't touch that woman. You're not touching that woman. Get her out of there. Do you see it? Do you see the chess match? David... David's got a four, is a forerunner for something that, that, that is critical. He's going to be the, the ancestor of the seed. And David's got to model something that the seed is going to be, both a king and a priest in one, in one person. So if God's going to have a king priest come into the earth, he's got to have a forerunner model to legally get the king priest into the earth. So David's very important. So what happens? Saul demonized, tries to pin David to the wall with a spear half a dozen times, chases him all over, all over the country, trying to kill him. But God delivers him. Moses and the slaughter of every Israelite child under, under two, the miraculous deliverance of Moses. Moses is a forerunner for the seed. After Jesus is born, the slaughter of the innocents, Herod killing every child. Each one of these are moves and counter moves in this divine chess match. But Jesus made it to the earth. The seed, the seed made it. He arrived and he made it to the cross. Satan's still trying to kill him all the way up to the cross. Had to try to have people run him off the cliff, try to have people stone him. But the seed made it to the cross. So in what sense was Satan cast out? by that defeat on the cross because he's still around. He's still causing trouble. We're warned that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling around seeing who's vulnerable to, to be devoured. You know, we're warned to put on the whole armor of God. Um, so in what sense was Satan cast out? This is very important for you to understand. The cross was a legal event. The cross was a legal, transactional event. Before the cross, Satan was the ruler of this world, the archon of this cosmos. After the cross, 
He's an outlaw. After the cross, he's a trespasser. He's a, he's a lawbreaker. This is precisely what Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says. New Living Translation says, he canceled the record of charges against us. This is legal. This is legal language. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It says he disarmed the archons. He disarmed the rulers and the principalities. Well, what were they disarmed of? They were disarmed of their legal rights. They were, disar- they were disarmed of their legal administrative authority on this planet. That's what they were disarmed from. from, from the day, up until the day the cross happened, every devil and every demon on planet Earth was, was walking around waving a, a, a permission slip. And then after that day, they looked around and their permission slips were gone. They had no, they, there was no more permission. There was no more illegal authority. All power and authority now belong to Jesus. And he's exercised his right to delegate that authority to you and me. We are in him. He is in us. But hold on a second. Hold on a second. Rev Dave. Rev David. Didn't, didn't Paul call Satan the God of this world? And then that after the cross? That's a problem. That's a problem for my thesis. Satan called, or Paul called Satan the God of this world. Interestingly enough, when uh, it's 2 Corinthians 4, 4, by the way, Paul called Satan the God of this world. He's using two completely different Greek words for God and world than Jesus used. He didn't say archon. He didn't say the archon of this cosmos. When he said God, he used the Greek word theos, which makes, basically means an object of worship. Anything in Greek that's an object of worship is a theos. And he didn't use the word cosmos for world, which means the planet. He used the word aeon. And aeon means a season or a period of time, an age. So basically, Paul, although it's translated in our Bibles very similarly, ruler of this world, God of this world, Jesus and Paul are saying two very different things. We just don't see it in English. He's saying, Paul is saying, that the devil is the object of worship in, the, in this season, in this system. That's all. That's all he's saying. There's no implication of any legal administrative rights or authorities imputed in what Paul is saying here. In the cross, the legal order has been restored. And the devil is an outlaw. I'll look at, if you've got your Bibles, I've pointed you toward Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians 1. In verse 19, Paul says, I also pray, and this is my prayer for you today, by the way. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, any archon. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him the head over all things for the benefit of who? The church. church. You. Me. 
And the church, you and me, is his body. And it is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Here's what I want you to understand today. The enemy may be at work around you, but it's not legal work. There's no permission slip. There's no legal authority. He's essentially an outlaw. If you will imagine for a moment that somebody willed you a house, a wonderful big mansion, but then a con man comes along and that con man dupes you out of the house and gets you to sign it away so that you no longer have ownership rights. And then he and his entire corrupt gang move in there and live there for years and years and years. And you start to go through the legal process. You get some legal help and you go through the legal process of the person who, who gave you the house to ultimately get the legal rights to the house back. And then the day comes when you walk out of that courthouse and you've got this paper in your hand that says, that house is mine again. It belongs to me. It's legal. It's paper signed, stamped by a judge. That house is mine now. But the, the, the person who's lived in there is still sitting in there. He's no longer a legal owner. He's no longer a legal resident. He's now a squatter. He's an outlaw. And so getting him out of that house is not a legal issue. Now it's an enforcement issue. It's an enforcement question. And you've, so you go get the sheriff. And you and the sheriff go to the house and you evict the squatter out of the house who has no longer has any legal right to be there. And maybe that eviction takes some time. Maybe you get, you know, maybe you get him evicted out of the West Wing, but he's still, there's still a couple of floors and then in the attic. And you, you keep finding new rooms that he's still camped out in. So every time you find a new room or a new corner of the mansion... You just go ahead and you use your enforcement power. You bring the sheriff if you need to, and you just get him out of that room too. And he has to leave because he has no legal right. The cross changed everything. And it didn't just, it wasn't just a place of exchanges. It was a place where the entire legal order of this planet was restored to the way it needed to be leaving only an enforcement, an enforcement process behind it. Thank you for listening to Liberty Christian Center's podcast. To partner with this ministry or for any additional information, please visit libertychristiancenter.org.